and welcome to the Zoe Health Podcast, a conversation where we explore topics that affect women's health and wellness and matter to you. I'm your host, Dr. Nontlantlas Tole, co-founder of Zoe Health, your all-in-one women's health and wellness platform. We love hearing from you and interacting with you, so please join the conversation in our community chat to let us know what your views are or to share your own stories about the topic we'll be covering today. For more information, please visit www.zoehealth.com. Zoe is spelled Z-O-I-E. We hope you love listening to the podcast. Please remember, any information we share here is not a substitute for a consultation with a qualified health professional. So make sure you book your next consult soon. Let's get started. We're talking about fibroids today. And I'm super, super excited to have you guys with us today. So thank you for joining us. Uh, hi, Gail. Hi, how are you? How are you? I'm good. I am so, so good. I'm glad that we prospered over the tech issues. Yes, um, <laughs> Welcome, guys. Thanks for joining us uh, on this live. Uh, my name is Dr. Nantantas Tole, and I'm one of the co-founders of Zoe. And uh, with me is Gia. Gia, how are you? Hi, everybody. Hi, doctor. So Gia is is the founder of the Fibroid Association of South Africa, uh, Fibroid Awareness Association of South Africa. So Gia, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to do you any injustice. I'm gonna just allow you to please introduce yourself um, and tell us a little bit about FASA, please. Um, my name is Gia. Um. FASA, Fibroid Awareness Association of South Africa. Our mission for FASA is to convey awareness, uh, advocacy, and speak about fibroids and to stop the silence out there about women suffering from fibroids. The association was formed from uh, 2018. This is from a live experience as a founder. Uh, we've got four board members in our foundation and we go out there like this month is july awareness month we go out there speak about fibroids and we are hoping that this is not the end just july we we want to really advocate and speak and make a difference for women out there who are really really suffering especially one, the ones that are that cannot afford uh, private medical aid mm. oh that's so necessary hey I mean, you know, I, I'm sure you can tell us more a little bit about the stats and everything, but, you know, fibroids is a condition, you know, that affects so many women. And it's crazy for me that so little attention is paid to such a life-changing event for a woman. I mean, you said, obviously, the organization started from your own experience. What, what led you to take on this fight? Um, what led me is in 2011, I had 16 fibroids in my womb. And I wanted to really be a mom, but the fibroids, which are very, I think one of the key things is maybe explain what are fibroids. They are non-cancerous tumors that can be found in the uterus, you know. That's why it's called uterine fibroids, actually. And for me, I found that, you know, I can't be a mom and I had to go undergo a procedure called myomectomy. And after that, I fell pregnant. But after um, I had a baby in 2015, the fibroids reformed again. With the pain and everything, I tried to, you know, look, is there um, 
association or somebody that really speaks or advocates for fibroids. And I couldn't find anybody in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And I looked in in USA, communicated with somebody in USA. And I was like, why not? Why can't I just, you know, start this? Because one of the key reasons is the doctors, you know, they release you and say, okay, go home and heal. But it is very emotionally taxing for women out there. It is very, mm-hmm. the procedures can be very taxing. And that is what why FASA was born, you know, to, to help women to, to, to get the correct procedures, you know. Mm-hmm. Women go to gynecologists that are told only to have a hair stick to me, but there are other procedures out there that can actually be less evasive for women, especially for for women who really want to have kids, you know. Mm-hmm. That's how FASA was born. And in terms of the statistics, we find that uh, the statistics is moving to 60% currently amongst African women. There hasn't been proof why. Maybe it might be genetics. Um, even nationally, globally, it hasn't been proved why it's attacking African women. And in South Africa, majority is African people. But you can find, you know, in a sector of 34,000 people, one in four women actually do suffer from fibroids. You know, that stat is so crazy for me. And I think I don't, it just blows my mind the fact that, you know, that's so many women, especially in the context of South Africa, black women, you know, are suffering in silence from these five, from having fibroids. And there is actually no specialized attention uh, specifically for South African or African women to deal with this. I just think it's it's crazy. So, um, you know, my hat goes off to you for starting this foundation and this association and just, you know, putting, standing up and taking up the mantle to really bring about awareness for, for women and help them to get resources and everything. And I think that was definitely one of the reasons why, you know, my co-founder and I started Zoe because there was just, you know, the specialized care for the, for women, all sorts of conditions, right? Because you know women, from the time we, we get our periods to until we reach menopause, there's so many uh, health chapters that we have to go through. And it just seems like, you know, the people who are making the healthcare decisions don't necessarily take that into consideration. Um, and I was really hoping Dr. Longiwe could join us because she's obviously the medical expert and can tell us a little bit more about, you know, the technical stuff around fibroids. But, you know, I think between you and I, we'll, we'll do our best not to, <laughs> not to speak untruths. But guys, yes, we're not, we're not medical doctors. So just a disclaimer, I'm holding thumbs like Dr. Lon will join us because she's an OBGYN and one, the one qualified to answer, these, to answer any questions that you guys might have. But, you know, as Gia said, fibroids are, are non-cancerous growths that happen in the uterus and um, they can vary from different sizes. And some of them sometimes, I mean, how many do you say you had 16 removed, Gia? Yeah, I had 16. I had 16 in my uterus. Did you see them after they removed them? I mean, how did did your body feel? How did you find out, first of all, that you had fibroids? I mean, what, what symptoms are you presenting with? The symptoms I was presenting with, I was 29, is when I was, I'm a runner. And um, when I'm running, I'm like, you know, I feel like something is stuck here. I'm married and intercourse was very painful, you know. It shouldn't be something that's painful. Heavy bleeding. I I had the most painful periods, you know. Um, my mm. periods used to be painful from the time I was 
um, 16, you know, but I was like, okay, no, it's a norm. But um, as I got to my 2029, 20, the, the blood just started, you know, I started clotting so badly. Um, the period pains were so excessive that I couldn't go to work. Um, I would skip one day mm. of work every month because I could not function at all, you know. Um, I had to call work that I'm not coming to work because I'm not okay. Um, those are presented with those symptoms. There are other major factors of the symptoms that other women do suffer from, uh, but those are the ones that I actually okay. suffered from. I see Dr. Gunen is on. Uh, Dr. Lon, if you could send us a request, send me a request to join, that would be great. Here's our technical guru our OBGYN guru who will help us to not give you guys incorrect information. <laughs> Hi, Dr. Lon. I'm so upset with ESCOM for doing this to you. Dude, like, I'm safe, though. I'm parked at a garage, so... Thank you yeah. so much. Oh, we really appreciate it. Gian and I here were, were talking about, you know, symptoms that she presented with when she had found out that um, she had fibroids, but I didn't want to, to give technically incorrect information. Um, but yeah, so so I know you've got the technical expertise. I mean, tell us a little bit more. We're talking just about the symptoms. Maybe you could start us at the base of, you know, what what is a fibroid? Why do we get fibroids? And how, how have you found patients presenting when they have them? Okay, so fibroids are usually an overgrowth. So it's like um, a benign mass or a tumor. So benign means non-cancerous. It's a benign mass or a tumor, which is an overgrowth of the muscle layer of the uterus, which is called the myometrium. So the uterus is made up of two layers, right? So you have the myometrium, which is the muscle layer. Then you have the endometrium, which is what sheds when we go on our normal menstrual period. So a fibroid is basically just an overgrowth or a mass in that area. It's generally benign. As a complication later on, some may become non-benign or cancerous, but it's not, um, it's not a very high percentage of them that do. Generally, with fibroids, a large percentage of people who have fibroids are actually asymptomatic. And in some cases, they may just be an incidental finding. So a patient may come in for something else. And upon doing an ultrasound, you find that they have fibroids and then we diagnose fibroids. But um, the smaller percentage that do can have um, symptoms that are quite distressing. One of the symptoms being heavy, heavy bleeding. So it can cause uh, heavy menstrual bleeding. It can cause what we call abnormal uterine bleeding, which would be irregular bleeding. Um, and yeah, generally it's, it's quite, quite heavy. Heavy to the point where some people come in presenting with an anemia that needs to be transfused with blood, for example. And then when you, when you investigate further, you'll find that the cause of that is fibroids. So the bleeding is definitely a big one. A second big one is infertility. So some patients might come in with a history of infertility or recurrent miscarriages uh, or just primary infertility. They've just never been able to fall pregnant at all. And that could be secondary to the fibroids as well. Then I think the next big thing would be if you have compressive symptoms. So some fibroids can grow very large. And depending on where in the uterus your fibroids are, they can potentially compress on your other organs. So they could potentially compress on your bladder, for example, and then you would come in with symptoms of urinary incontinence of one form or another if they compress on your intestines, for example, on your bowel, mm -hmm. close to your rectum, because your uterus sits just before 
your rectum. So that could also cause uh, constipation and like gastric issues and things like that. Also pain. Mm. Pain is a big thing. So pain during your menses, our menstrual cramps, as well as in some cases where you get fibroids that now have complications or have what we call degenerative changes. They can just present with a lot of pain. Uh, Some of them are what we call pedunculated fibroids. So they might have a stalk and then the fibroid is hanging from a stalk. So that stalk can get uh, torted or twisted and that twisting can also cause pain. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if there's anything else you would want to add. I think I heard you saying something about you you weren't able to go to work. I think it was secondary to the bleeding. I'm not sure if you experienced yeah. any other symptoms. Um, I think also intercourse. Um, when you're speaking about pain, I think if mm. they're pressed, it, they could actually have effect in terms of intercourse. Uh, like I just said now, uh, while I was running, I could feel them press against my uterus. I mean, not my uterus, against my bladder. And that caused me to go to the toilet quite often. And I was mm. like, that's really abnormal. That's what I so, presented with. So tell me, Kia, when, when, when you went to the doctor, I mean, what was the process for you? How were you feeling? What, what did the doctor say? What was the whole procedure for getting diagnosed with, with fibroids? I think when the Dr. Nuni was saying that, you know, um, that it's, uh, you said symptomatic, like something like um, at 28, um, I didn't really have so much symptoms. I just went to the gynae and they said, okay, you've got some fibroids, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay. So what's the next step? He's like, no, don't worry. They're not that big. But when I tried to have a baby, you know, I was like, okay, nothing is happening. And I go and, oh my God, in just the process of a year, they've grown so big. And I'm like, is this something that I really ate or something, you know? But, you know, the guy is like, no, there's really nothing much I could do. I, I could have done about it. They took me through the procedure called myomectomy that time. And he said, you know, that's the best success for you if you really want to have a child. Because in other cases, other women don't have to remove them depending on where the mm. fibroid is allocated. Mine was allocated inside the uterus, which made it very challenging for me to fall pregnant. So they had to be removed. But four months after they were removed, I fell pregnant. So Dr. Yeah. Long, before we talk about the, the treatment options, like what Kia went through, what causes fibroids? I mean, they're obviously, like you said, non not cancerous, but what is the thing that just causes them to grow and what makes you more predisposed to having them? So, I mean, the greater medical community just doesn't know. And that's always like the first, the first cause that's listed is unknown. Then there could be things like, so family history, if someone in your family has had fibroids, like with family history, it's, it's usually it's first degree relative on your mother's side of the family. So if your mother, your grandmother, a sister, your mother's siblings or something had fibroids, you are at a greater predisposition to having fibroids as well. There is a bit of a genetic factor uh, when it comes to fibroids. I think another thing is, so they do quote hormones or hormonal changes. So some yeah, women may find that, hmm, some women mm. may find that they don't have fibroids in, usually, but they can appear for the first time or they can present rather 
for the first time in pregnancy, so pregnancy and childbirth, as well as ladies who've never had kids before. So when you're naliparous, your estrogen levels like later on. So naliparity, when it comes to the amount of estrogen that you have in your body, also affects it. So a high level of estrogen in your body, also if you've never had kids, can also cause fibroids. I think those are the main things. So none of them have actually, there isn't enough research to prove any of the one points, mm-hmm. but that's where the school of thought is. And that's kind of what has been the, the little data that's been collected. But the greatest thing is the cause is just unknown. Some people just have them. You might not have a genetic predisposition at all, no family history whatsoever, and you just have them. I think on my side, when she's speaking, it was genetic. My aunt as well had the same issue, which is my mom's sister had fibroids. She couldn't also have kids until at a later stage. Um, She had a first child at 40, you know. um, Even when the Dr. Noni is saying now that the older you wait, I've always heard, you know, that my mom once said that reason being you have fibroids. My mom is a nurse midwife. Sometimes when you have fibroids is because you waited for so long to have kids, but that's still also not proved. Uh, but at least now we understand it's because of the estrogen levels. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you, you then had yours removed, right? Dr. Lan, maybe you can tell us first, like, what are your treatment options, surgical and non-surgical? And then, yeah, maybe after that, just tell us about your own experience. Like, what did your doctor say to you after you had your surgery and everything about getting pregnant? Maybe, Dr. Lan, tell us about the treatment options. Okay, so you grouped them nicely. So there's surgical and non-surgical treatments. And we'd obviously always try the non-surgical route before we get to the surgical route. So in some cases, you can use contraception. And what the aim of contraception is, is to try and decrease the size of fibroids. It has been shown in some ladies, it definitely does work, but it's not always a method that works perfectly for everybody. There are what we call ablative therapies as well. So it depends though, whether you want fertility sparing treatment. So are you still wanting to have mm-hmm. children or are you you're not necessarily, you know, um, concerned about sparing your fertility. So there are ablative therapies that are offered more so in the private sector than they would be in the public sector. So the uterine artery, which is the main blood vessel that would supply the uterus, so you can do ablative therapies to the artery where you're no longer providing supply. So we're hoping that the fibroids will no longer get a blood supply so that they can shrink. And then your surgical options would be a myomectomy, which is the removal of the fibroids, or a hysterectomy, which is the removal of the entire uterus. So in some cases, so in ladies who feel like they have completed their family, they no longer want to have children anymore, even with a small fibroid, some of them opt to go the hysterectomy route, which is removing Mm -hmm. the um, the entire uterus. In some cases, your doctor may also advise you to get a a hysterectomy depending on how many fibroids you have, how big they are, because sometimes the myomectomy, if they're too many, it it might do more damage than good, if that makes sense. And then the myomectomy would be the removal of the individual fibroids. Okay. Sorry, yeah, before we get to you, uh, just to hear about your experience, 
so basically what you're saying, Dr. Talon, is you can kill the blood flow to the, to the fibroids and have them shrink because of a lack of blood supply, or you can have them surgically removed if that's what is called for. But, I mean, like, what happens? That, that's like a proper surgery where they cut into your uterus, right? I mean, how does that yeah. affect your chances for pregnancy in terms of scarred tissue and all of that? So it depending on how many fibroids were removed, where your fibroids were removed, it can increase the risk of your pregnancy. So a person who, let's say, for example, had one or two small fibroids removed, the fibroids aren't necessarily sitting in what we call the, the lowest uterine segment, which would be the thinnest part of the uterus when your uterus stretches in pregnancy. Mm. Um, the fibroids weren't affecting any of those those things. Generally, your pregnancy will go without too many issues. The issues then present if you've had very, very big fibroids and multiple fibroids that were removed, and some of them were in that area. So if a fibroid sits or has sat in that lower uterine segment, what happens is it now forms, it's the same with the C-section, because that's where we would cut yeah. when yes, we exactly. want to remove the baby. So if there's a scar there, it means that you are at a slightly higher risk compared to everyone else, um, a risk of having uterine rupture. So mm-hmm. either when you deliver or in your pregnancy, look, it's a small risk, but it's a risk that exists and it does happen to some people. So keeping that in mind, it would make your pregnancy slightly more high risk than another pregnancy. But generally, pregnancies go off without a hitch, not too many problems. You can also have now complications if you have fibroids in the pregnancy, mm, um, yeah. that can cause its own issues. So fibroids bleed a lot if you mm. cut them there, for example, like surgically. Yeah. So the same way they can bleed a lot just generally and uh, present with bleeding, they also bleed a lot during surgery. So let's say you were scheduled for a normal vaginal delivery and then something happens and you now need to go for a c-section uh if you cut through a fibroid during the caesar that can cause quite extensive bleeding some ladies can also have just complications of bleeding after childbirth if they have fibroids in situ Mm -hmm. another thing is if you do have a fibroid that's sitting again that same low uterine segment or at the bottom of the uterus it can be obstructive so some ladies might not necessarily be able to give birth um, naturally and they might need to electively be booked for a cesarean section. Yeah, well, what, tell us about how what you went through with your pregnancy and what, what your doctor told you your options are, if like surgery was your only option. Um, I think she did raise some surgical interventions, but there are also non-invasive uh, surgical interventions like uterine fibroid embolization. And liposcopy as well, lipo, liposcopy mm. as well, besides from myomectomy and hysterectomy. So um, in my situation, I had a myomectomy and the fibroids came back in 2016. But obviously, I've been cut twice from myomectomy and a cesarean. I had to have something that is non-invasive. I couldn't have a myomectomy again. Uh, and my gynae suggested that I do a uterine fibroid embolization. So, I mean, you went through the procedure. Tell us how it was for you and Dr. Long can put all the technical bits in place for us. Okay. I think for me, having the myomectomy was a bit challenging. It's the most painful procedure to go through. 
after Caesar, uh, even had a cesarean and I was like, your cesarean was a breeze for me. My omectomy, it actually took me six weeks of healing. Wow. The first two, three weeks, I couldn't even make a bed. The first week, oh. it's, a, it's a struggle to go to the toilet, to do basic things. The first four weeks, you can't sleep on the side of the bed. Oh, no, the worst part is that's when you realize that Stomach muscles are so important for laughing yes. and sneezing. Yes, and sneezing. You see, I used to like, please don't make me laugh. Yeah. The first two weeks, I was don't like, please don't make sneeze. me laugh. Like every time I'll sneeze, I like yeah. to sneeze. Because it, it, it was so painful. Yeah. But besides from that, emotionally, it's very, very taxing because you don't know who to talk to. That mm. how long is this going to take? You can talk to your gynecologist. They give you the medical intervention, go home, take painkillers. But emotionally, it's, it is very taxing for a woman. 2017, I had uterine fibroid embolization. It is a very simple procedure, but the process, the periods after that, I think they cut the blood supply of the fibroid for the fibroid to stop growing. So now your mm. first period, it's so painful. It's like somebody is mm. literally stabbing you on your back you don't know the second period the same but as time goes on the periods actually become uh better and then six in within six months the blood flow starts becoming okay and the clotting does stop so that's what i went through how quickly have the fibroids grow dr lana i think obviously it's, it's different for every person but i mean is someone, does someone have to keep going for these procedures to have these fibroids removed how often would that happen and like, what's um, your limit? So it's, look, in some cases, like I think Kia had mentioned this before, I checked and her fibroids, she was told her fibroids more, and only a year later, they'd grown inside. So we do find, so generally what we would do is we would monitor the size of the fibroids, so whether or not a treatment method has been started. We would generally do that, say, we use hormonal therapy, for example. So we put you on a contraceptive method and then we would like in either three or six months where you would then, we would monitor as per ultrasound to see if the fibroids have grown in size or if they've reduced. Some ladies can have accelerated growth compared to others. So there isn't really like a setting, you know, to say mm -hmm. that they accelerate depending on whatever factor. With regards to follow-up, it depends a lot on your symptoms as well. Your symptoms and kind of treatment goals or your treatment age. So if you came as a patient who was presenting with infertility, for example, secondary to fibroids, this, your, your aim is generally, you know, to start having to this is, bring back your fertility. So your follow-ups would be a lot more frequent than someone who is asymptomatic knows that they have fibroid or has symptoms ever so often the same goes for someone whose fibroids cause it's a heavy bleeding for example you know their follow-ups would be a lot more frequent with regards to therapies uh, or the treatment options that are available so some ladies respond really well where after a first treatment the fibroids go away even if they may not go away fully but they no longer are symptomatic or are causing distress. 
So either they become really small and despite the fact that they're there, you can still fall pregnant. Or mm. they not bleeding as much as you used to bleed before. Then that's all good and well. It's fine. That's sorted. It means that we're, we're getting somewhere. In some instances, though, you might remove a fibroid and you get formation of new fibroids, for example. And yeah, I think it just really depends on your symptomatology as well as your, your treatment. Okay, she's gone. Okay, I think there was something wrong with her signal. But um, Kiat, I mean, look, you know, it sounds to me like having fibroids is something that is going to affect you one way or another and sometimes in really complicated ways, right? Because if, it's, if you have an issue of fertility, I mean, what, what are your options? I mean, what did your doctor say when, when you were talking about getting pregnant, you know, and being faced with possibly infertility? And how was the pregnancy journey for you? I mean, were you worried and stressed about, you know, them coming back? The fertility for me, I think it was by God's grace. Immediately after I removed the fibroids from my omectomy, I felt pregnant four months afterwards, you know. During the pregnancy, I didn't have any complications. The only thing that the gynae said is I cannot uh, wait until 37 weeks because if you go into labor, you can bleed internally because your scar is still new. So he mm. had to deliver my baby at 36 weeks. Mm, by C-section, um, eh? Yes, I had to have a C-section. Again, after I did the uterine fibroid embolization, I would love to be a mom again. I'm a mom of one. It's an individual. You have to have, every person is different. And for me, I've had massive fibroids. I've had fibroids grow back. So he would say to me, I went there in April. He said, I need to go for an MRI. The fibroids have shrank, but he wants to check, am I still able to be, do I have a chance of fertility? So through that, he has to look at the MRI. Sure. I mean, Dr. Lan, I mean, for in Gia's situation, she, by God's grace, she was lucky to get pregnant a couple of months after having her surgery. But I mean, someone was asking here, what are your options if, if I have the surgery because I want to get pregnant and it takes a while for me to get pregnant? Am I, you know, waiting, buying time between having the fibroids grow back and getting pregnant? It's a waiting game, unfortunately, more or not, you know, so... Generally, after the surgery, if your infertility was truly secondary to the fibroids, generally after the surgery, your chances of falling pregnant are a lot better. Unless there are uh, like uh, concomitant uh, factors or other things that are contributing to that infertility as well. And like you said, there definitely is a chance that you know, the fibroids could grow back during that time. So in a person who was not necessarily going for fertility-sparing um, treatment, uh, it would be easier, in inverted commas, and I use this word very lightly, in the sense that once the fibroids are removed, you could put them on um, contraceptives, for example, so the COC, mm-hmm. then you know that you can control the hormones in that way, the hormone balance in that way, and the chances of the fibroids coming back are smaller, or it's less likely that the fibroids would come back. But in a person who is obviously waiting to fall pregnant or has done the surgery specifically for fertility reasons, mm-hmm. that catch-22 definitely still stands, you know, and it's difficult to say you will fall pregnant in uh, a specified amount of time or a stipulated amount of time. It's just a, it's a bit of a waiting game there. 
I mean, this thing, this really sounds like such an expensive journey. Uh, okay, what was your, how did you, was medical aid able to cover this? How did you, how did it go on your side with, with funding all of these surgeries? And I mean, luckily for you, I suppose there wasn't any, um, you know, fertility treatments that you needed, but is this covered by medical aid? I mean, how much do you know about that? And also just in your position as to your organization? I think that's why we formed FASA because we find that uh, for my side, I had medical aid. Um, medical aid does uh, provide those procedures for me. I mean, the cost of a myomectomy cost about, in 2011, it was about 60000 For uterine fibroid embolization was about 100000 That's inclusive of hospitalization. Um, but for somebody who does not have medical aid, I will tell you right now, there is a waiting game. Women out there do not have medical aid. Even today, I just got a text from one woman saying, I've got fibroids, I want to remove them, uh, but I do not have a medical aid. Baraguana has a two to three year waiting list. They have a machine mm-hmm. called HIFU but they have about two years waiting list. Resources mm-hmm. for medical doctors are limited on a public sector for, for fibroids. This is where FASA comes in that, you know what, we want to start advocating and speaking to the government. They need to start forming a public, I mean, a public woman hospital. Fibroids are not taken seriously because they are not uh, mortality driven. Uh, but I would say to you, they are a lifestyle problem for a woman. Uh, three mm. years ago, we had a woman come to us and she looked, she looked eight, month, eight months pregnant. Oh and I spoke to a doctor in Baraguana and that doctor said, you know, it's fine. Dr. Shitson said, no, it's fine. I'll take her on. But I will tell you, you know how long she had to wait. She had to wait 18 months. In a public sector, you wait for a very, very long time. But it is easier if you have medical aid. But let's be real. South Africans, only 20% of people can afford medical aid. My gosh. With that type of weight, it's like, it's, it just sounds like there's a, there's, you'll just be on a loop, right? I mean, if your fibroids come back. Dr. Lon, maybe from your side in the, in the hospital, like what is, you know, what is the reason that there's no attention for a condition that so many women suffer from and I'm talking and the reason I mention it is because not only is it like you know uh, the lifestyle issue that Kia mentioned but if for example you're a young woman and you've got fibroids you have to start thinking about your fertility right so you may have to do egg freezing you may have to find yourself doing all sorts of other procedures that you that you're not prepared for what is the reason that you know uh, uh, people like Kia have to start these foundations to get you know, hospitals or the government or the departments of health to, to focus on this really pressing issue for women? Like, what is, what is happening? I think, truthfully speaking, there is a very large spread or widespread problem when it comes to infrastructure in public hospitals, first and foremost. The budgeting is another thing, and I think we've all seen the effects of corruption. Um, So I I think those things, I don't think people realize just how directly those things affect 
things like the health sector and other mm. sectors large. Because you find that we are one under-resourced. Like you said, there aren't enough people, first and foremost, who are equipped. So I'll put it that way. A lot of people who do end up specializing go into the private sector. Yeah. The private sector, you have more control over the things that happen within the private sector. You have more resources. It's easier. You know, life mm-hmm. is a lot. It's easier. Whereas in the public sector, there's a lack of staff. There aren't enough people who are trained. There may be posts that are available, but posts are generally frozen. So you find that the, um, the staff to patient ratio at a public hospital is ridiculous. It's, it's absolutely ridiculous. You don't have enough doctors or nurses to, to nurse or take care of the patients that are already within the sector. So with that being said, um, infrastructure-wise, so you have to think of theater time is expensive. Um, theater equipment is expensive. So you may find a hospital, mm-hmm. I, when the old hospital I worked at had burned down, we started doing, um, started working at different sites. And there was a hospital that I went to that um, has eight was it eight? Eight or six theaters, but only two theaters were working. The other four theaters weren't working because of equipment issues. So they either mm. didn't get the bed that was working. And those things are expensive, hey? Equipment costs in the like high hundred thousands and sometimes something cost millions. So four theaters were not working only because there wasn't good infrastructure. So you already have a strained health system with regards to the staff infrastructure um, availability so i think more than more than anything it's not that it's not taken into consideration or it's not taken seriously it's just there's only so much that we can do yeah Um, yeah so with the lack of skill the lack of infrastructure you end up having situations where the waiting list is that long you know three years and cases two to three years is is actually quite short there are places that may have a longer waiting all the little things that contribute to making our health system so because we really are just overburdened i work in the public sector overburdened overworked underpaid it's really a problem it really really is a problem that's a topic we can speak about for for a very long time um so yeah no don't don't even get me started um so tell us yeah you know what i want to find out from you i mean the stuff that you gave us right very high but when you said you started struggling with fibroids, you couldn't find support. Like, why do you think that that's happening? Like, why are there so many women who are suffering in silence? I, what, what, was, what was the reason for you? I mean, you obviously went out and looked for support and couldn't find any, and that's why you started, you started FASA. But why do you think that women were not, you know, sharing about their experiences with fibroids? Um, I think... As we know, we are Africans and discussing our fertility issues, look, it, 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 it seems like it's a taboo, you know. Yeah. I'll be sitting in the same office. Um, I remember at one stage I told one lady that, oh, my God, I'm going through this, you know, and I decided to be vocal about it. And she's like, oh, my God, I'm going through the same thing. And you've said the key word, which is silence. People are keeping quiet. Mm-hmm. They don't want to discuss it. They don't want to talk about it. 
And that's why we are here. We want people to start talking about it because the reason being is I went out there, found that nobody is really talking about it. It's like, Scratch, you know, it's the same as a woman who's barren or has infertility mm. issues. It's seen as, I think it's from the old generation that it's kind of like a taboo to discuss your fertility issues. But we are sitting in 2022, you know, um, yeah, we, we are in the new generation. We need to now yeah. stop, start talking about these things because they affect everybody. And even in the workplace, it can actually also affect your productivity or in your workplace because it raises things mm-hmm. like depression, mental illness, you know, and if you don't talk about it, keep it within yourself. I promise you mental illness will be a factor in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Tosselang, if you're a woman and you're listening to this or you know someone who's got these symptoms, and they don't actually know if they've got fibroids, what, what is your suggestion? I mean, what's the first step that they should take or look out for? Um, so I think just be really mindful of um, your symptoms. Generally, if you suspect that you may have fibroids, it's because there is something that's making you suspect that there might be something wrong. Um, I don't think enough women see gynecologists, to be honest. And these are people that mm, these are people that are specifically trained for women's health. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um, GPs, no hate on GPs, but I, I often find that people go to GPs and they do the bare minimum and they'll still claim. And they, they're not always remember that a person who is specializing in a particular department deals with that day in, day out. So yeah. they have more, more knowledge and more experience with the treatment of those conditions, as opposed to somebody who sees every single ailment under the sun and, you know, dabbles in a bit of everything. So I think specialists do exist for a, a particular reason. And if that niche is there, go into that niche and actually, you know, um, explore your options. A GP can mm-hmm. give you a referral letter I know some some hospitals do need a referral letter before they can see you, and that's mostly just a means of trying to um, decrease the the numbers because we spoke about that being overburdened and whatnot. So going to um, a clinic or a GP with your symptoms and having them write a referral for those who don't have medical aid to go to a hospital within the public sector, and you can get a GOPD date. Uh, that's a gynae outpatients department GOPD a GOPD date sometimes you do have to wait a little bit longer for you to get a date but you will get seen eventually um I think the first step is just you know that that standing up and actually wanting to consult about that and many people don't some people leave things until they're way too late and they end up coming through the emergency room or come with a problem that could have been solved had they presented earlier but now, you know, things have gotten to the extent where there isn't a lot you can do anymore or there aren't a lot of options left. So I do encourage any lady who's watching, any gent who's watching, who knows the lady, all gents know ladies. Your mother, sister, girlfriend, somebody, somebody. Yeah. You know, like, let's normalize, let's normalize going to 
a woman doctor for your for your yes, health. Guys, please, people go, go for flu, but they won't yes. go for like a small growth that's growing. Exactly. That's not supposed. Do you get what I mean? Yes. Like, don't go, go to doctor lungs only when you've got a gynecological issue. So it be something exactly. that we're doing on a regular. Exactly, and everybody mm-hmm. on my timeline has been turning thirty this year. Go get a pap smear as a thirtieth mm-hmm. birthday present to yourself. <laughs> go, do it. Go, yes. go to a yes. clinic. Local clinics offer pap smears. They will refer you if something is wrong with your pap smear. Go, even if yeah. you have a girl child, when she turns yeah. eighteen, go for a normal gynae visit. Nothing has to be wrong for you to make sure that everything is okay with you. So yeah. once you do start going, if there are problems, then you obviously can follow up as per your doctor's recommendations. But going for a gynae visit, let's say after the age of 30, every three years, if you're an otherwise healthy person, is a good practice. Just to say, listen, there's not much going on or I don't think anything is wrong, but I just want to make sure everything is still in place. Everything is still where mm-hmm. it has to be. Yeah, Absolutely. just go. Yeah. So that's the advice from the good no, doctor. I... Uh, you should, we should be seeing our gynees more often, not only when we have problems. Kia, on your side, I mean, what's, what's your advice for a woman who's in your position, you know, a couple of years ago, who's trying to understand and find support? What, what, what do you say? Like, what's, what's your takeaway from this and the message you want to leave everyone with? <laughs> I think that's a very heavy question. Um, in terms of that, you know, um, I always, you know, in our network and I'm glad that, um, I've collaborated with you guys. Uh, we've collaborated with you guys as if a woman in my similar situation, as I would say, before you think you have five boys is, have you been to a gynae? Have you had yourself checked, Mm. you know? Um, they will come and say, I've got symptoms. I'm like, have you had, you know, so the first thing is referral to a gynecologist. I do have, um, FASA does have um, doctors in the public sector that are willing to help FASA to say a woman can come and just pay 100 rand um, just to see if they do have fibroids. So, that's the first stage that as far as we are helping women out there to get the right doctors to go to um, if they do not know who to go to. Then after that, mm-hmm. we will come to the second phase to see how big are your fibroids and what is the next process. And obviously that is done by the medical intervention doctor that will go through that with the patient, but we do not really get involved in in that process. But if a patient feels that they want to divulge that information to us, um, they can. Um, if they've been through a procedure, um, they do need support emotionally and um, finding out what is the next process. Should I be going through this? Yes, then we are. As far as we are able to assist there in an emotional capacity. Great. Guys, I mean, from what I've heard from you guys, prevention for me, I, prevention seems like it's better than cure. So guys, as Dr. Lan said, please, let's go visit yes. our gynees. Um, and get checked out because if you are going through something like this and you don't know it, it's going to cost you emotionally, physically, financially if you're not prepared. And obviously, you know, that's what we're here for. This is why Zoe exists. 
and these ladies who have joined me today, these are the type of people we partner with so that we can help women go through these different health seasons with confidence and with support and armed with, with all the knowledge that you need um, to really get through every single um, part of your healthcare journey where you need support. So for those of you who don't know, excited to say our app is live for Apple and uh, Android and iOS as well as Huawei. Um, so download it. And the awesome thing is you'll find Dr. Lon there. Pa, 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 pa. She's there to answer <laughs> any of your gynecologically related questions. So on the app, what we have is circles. Um, and that means groups of women around specific topics. There's other types of circles as well. they for new moms, for lactation, if you need advice, if you're a new mom, if you're pregnant, anything, contraceptives, jump onto the Zoe Health app. We're there, we're here to help you. There's lots of women on there. Ask any question you want, comment um, on other people's questions. Let's just be here for women to support one another. But thank you for joining us. I really appreciate both of you being here. Thank you so much for having us. All right. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks for joining. Bye, good night. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please visit our website, www.zoehealth.com to share and rate this podcast and to access more content and resources like this. Join us on our next episode as we bring you more of the women's health and wellness topics that matter to you.